one of the most famous hymn writers in, uh, in the Protestant tradition is a man named William Cooper. William Cooper was a contemporary of John Newton in the 1700s, uh, latter half of the uh, 18th century um, in England. And uh, he lived with, next to John Newton for a time, helped him pastor, took care of different pastoral needs. And, and one of the reasons he moved to be next to John Newton is because uh, Cooper suffered severely with melancholy and depression. Uh, he had a, a very difficult life. He, his mother died when he was six. His father died um, a bit later on. Um, uh, but mainly this just, this feeling of, of just that he's disappointing people. If you read some of his stuff, uh, that he's um, not able to be happy or that God is against him would creep into his mind. Uh, one of the main reasons that would, he'd be led to this melancholy feeling is because he would wonder sometimes if he's under the wrath of God because of his sin. And so oftentimes to fight this wrong feeling, he would write poetry. And so a lot of the songs that you might be aware of, um, a lot of them we don't really sing in this church, or maybe you're not, you wouldn't sing in other churches either, but they were sang in the 19th and 18th centuries. One of those songs is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, Not to be confused with the famous U2 song, She Moves in a Mysterious Way. But I wonder if that's where they got it from. Interesting. I don't know. Here's how the Cooper song goes. There's four verses long. This is what he writes. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. And he will make it plain. Psalm 107. Predates Cooper's song by over 2,000 years. In Psalm 107, we're meant to read it and to grow in wisdom by pondering God's loving kindness, even in, the, even in the midst of trials. So let me go ahead and, and encourage you to turn to page 506 in your pew Bible. Page 506 in your pew Bible. And look at Psalm 107. And go ahead and turn to the last verse there. Sometimes in scripture, it's plainly told to us what the point of a text is. And Psalm 107 is one of those places where we see... We're told what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to respond to this psalm. So look at Psalm 107, verse 43. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So... When you're distressed, 
when you're weary, when you're feeling stuck, when sin in your own heart seems to be increasing, and you feel unstable, you feel like you're going crazy, when life squeezes you, out come all kinds of responses, oftentimes unhealthy ones. The psalmist here is trying to help the reader understand that God's love is still around us. You see, when we're squeezed in life, one of the first things we can do is to begin to doubt God's love for us. Does God actually love me? But behind our experience of trials is our God who stands over the trials and sovereignly shows his love through them. That's what the psalmist is getting at. So if, you wanted, if, you, if you're a note taker and you wanted to write something down, this is what I would write down. When in distress, the wise ponder the steadfast love of God. When in distress, the wise ponder the steadfast love of God. Because this psalm is so lengthy and I want to read every verse, I'm going to read through the psalm as uh, I go through my points. So let me go ahead and and give you the, uh, let's go ahead and pray and then I'll give you the three points. Let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, you are full of loving kindness toward us. Lord, it is something that we believe and we attest to, we've experienced And yet we know that according to your word, the love of Christ surpasses all understanding and we'll never, even in eternity, fully be able to understand the love of Christ for us. So show us the love of Christ through your word. Show us, O Lord, that through stormy trials, even when we're foolish in sin, that your love is fixed upon us. We pray that you do this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to break the psalm down into three portions. The middle portion will be the longest because it's the longest part of the text. First, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3, the testimony of the redeemed. Look at verses 1 to 3, the testimony of the redeemed. Let's read it. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. The human author of this psalm is not given. We're given uh, multiple times. We're told that a psalm is of David or Asaph or the sons of Korah, Solomon or even Moses. Uh, we, we don't know the author here. Whoever wrote the psalm, though, had a rich understanding of Israel's history and God's divine care for them throughout the nation's history. So verse 1 is actually an answer to the psalm that precedes Psalm 107. So if you will, look at your Bibles, look at Psalm 106. Now, this, friends, gives further, further evidence that the psalms aren't just 150 separate songs are just kind of thrown in a book that have no uh, order. There's order to these psalms. And the more we can see it, the more you really appreciate uh, the divine, uh, divine editor of the psalms and how he ordered them 
to be uh, read in, in uh, to be read in mm, almost said order, but I keep thinking reaching for different words. I've said that about ten times in one sentence. All right, look at Psalm one hundred six. Look at verse forty seven. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Now we have Psalm 107, the answer to that prayer in Psalm 106. So Psalm 106, the the last Psalm in book four of the Psalms, there's five books in the book of Psalm. This is the first Psalm of the fifth book in the book of Psalms. And it begins to answer that cry, that plea in Psalm 106. Verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands. There it is. God's done this from east and from the west and from the north and from the south. To be redeemed means to buy back, to, to repurchase someone or something. So God, in a sense, has repurchased what is already his. He brought back his people from trouble and from distress. And because of God's purchasing power and deliverance from trouble, God's people are called to respond to what he has done with thanksgiving to him for his goodness that's been expressed through his steadfast, immovable, constant, fixed love. God is good. Everything he does is an extension of his goodness. And he cannot do evil because his whole being is good. This is the reason for giving thanks in verse 1. Because he is good. God is also love. His, his nature is a steadfast, loving kindness. Full of mercy. It is a Steadfast love that has a sense of immovable and kindness and mercy all wrapped up into one. And that's what these gathered people from around the globe, from the north, the south, the east and west are called to respond in. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. They are to say so. As you see there in verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so to testify, to give praise to this love. When I worked at Kids Across America, which is a branch of, of Canicut camps in uh, further south in, in Missouri, um, in Golden, Missouri. Anyone ever been there before outside of Branson? At the very end of each week, we'd have this time called say so. And it came from this very verse, Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So during say-so time, what you would do is you would have all the campers there and the counselors, and you get up and you testify to what God has done in your life throughout that week. And it was such a refreshing time to see the way the Lord would work through individuals throughout the Week And we'd have this time of say-so. As elders, we used to go around and we used to begin our elder time with a say-so time. Uh, we used to go around and say, what is God doing in our church? Uh, it, it's such an important part of being a Christian to testify to various ways that you see God working. 
Otherwise, you can become very cynical, you know? What's not working? What just needs to be fixed? What can we tweak here? Uh, the problem in life and, and particularly in ministry is that there's always things that need to be, you know, fixed or helped or aided. And if you become myopic in that way of, of things that need to be improved or just problems that need to be handled, you can grow very cynical over time. And you can miss all the wonderful things that God is doing in the life of a church. Well, friends, we are born to praise God, to give thanks to God, and to see what God is doing. And then a culmination of what we're seeing God doing or a culmination of the good things that God is doing is praise. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Uh, praise is a culmination of joy. You know, last week we were singing a song. I think it was Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. And it was beautiful. It was loud. It filled the whole room. I heard a couple hallelujahs and amens. Why, why do we want to say that? It's because we're just so enthused, overwhelmed with joy, that it doesn't seem complete just to go with silence, right? I always appreciate Brother Steve Burden. Amen. <laughs> I, I, different cultures have different ways of expressing, yada, 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 culture. Uh, you know what I'm saying, though. It's good to give testimony to what God is doing. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say something about what God is doing in their lives. Uh, friends, the more you are involved in this church, the more you realize there are brothers and sisters who are saying so constantly. I'm so encouraged just getting to know Austin and Katie Leitner and, and the different trials in their lives in the last few months. And I testify to God's goodness even through them. Brother Art, it's been a, a, a sobering joy to walk with you the last month or so throughout your trials. And I am so encouraged that you're giving God the glory and you're praising him throughout this difficult time. Ken and Diana Kenny, throughout the tragedies of your life, Diana losing your brother, Ken getting, you know, in a sense, mugged and almost losing your life, giving praise to God for the way he's carried you through that trial. And the list goes on and on. Catherine Van Steenberg, the way that you respond to unknown health issues in your life, you're testifying to God's goodness even through things you don't understand. Marvin and Cat Music, getting to know you guys more, saying, declaring the goodness of, that God is at work in your life and not doubting his love for you. Friends, that's supernatural. That is God at work in our church. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Secondly, we see the deliverance of the redeemed. We see the deliverance of the redeemed. Now, let, me, let me show you a few things the way this psalm is working poetically. You see that there's four different parts to this, this middle section. And they all start with the word some. So look at verse 4. Some wandered in desert wastes. Now go down to verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways. Verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships. 
So kind of four different categories of people or four different seasons of life. And in each section is the same refrain. Look at verses uh, 6 and 8. Each section has this. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 8. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now look at verse 13. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. 15. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Verse 19. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 21. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. You get it. So, so this, is a, this is organized in a way to get us to focus on the various ways God is delivering and redeeming his people from their distress. So first, look at how God redeems the spiritually hungry. Look at verses 4 to 9. The spiritually hungry. Verse 4, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We can't be certain to which wilderness the psalmist is referring to because he doesn't mention it and there's no superscript. It could be the 40 years between the time that the Israelites were brought out of the slavery of from the Egyptians until the time they reached the promised land in Canaan. It could be the wanderings as they were exiled from, uh, by the Babylonians. And then maybe even the wanderings as they went back to the promised land. It could be just a difficult and long journey in an Arabian desert. So just imagine what it's like to be in a desert Longing for a city, for protection, for food, for water. There's no city on the horizon. You want to stop. You want to find rest. And you can't find rest. Your soul is thirsty. And you're hungry. Sorry, you're you're thirsty and you're hungry. And these are realities, physical realities meant to make a spiritual point. Verse 5 says, They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. They were weary. They were tired. They wanted to give up. Their, their souls, in a sense, just felt homeless. And what did they do? They desperately cried out to God. That's how they responded to their weariness. Verse 6, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. This is how he answered them. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. He showed them the path to the city that's at the end of their wilderness wanderings. They wandered, and in their wandering, they were anxious. They were distressed. As Jesus looked upon the crowds in Jerusalem, he says they were distressed like sheep without a shepherd. And then God satisfied them. He satisfied the longings of their soul. 
The hungry soul he filled with good things. You see this physical experience, this wandering, this, this homelessness, and this hunger is pointing to a more important spiritual reality that our souls are hungry and longing for God. Have you ever just had a huge meal, children? What's one, one of your favorite meals to have? Someone shouted out just, that you just love eating this kind of food and you feel so happy afterward. Fried chicken. Fish. What's that? Chick-fil-A milkshakes. Chick-fil-A. All right. Vodka? What is that, Anne? Is that German? A pasta dish. Okay. So imagine you eat that. Afterwards, you feel just relaxed. Like for me, it's Thanksgiving. I want Thanksgiving only one time a year. I, couldn't, I could not handle it more than once. But I love Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. And you just feel so satisfied. Like you accomplished something, but all you really did was eat. And now you're happy. And that's the imagery that God is using here. To reveal something very true about our souls. Our souls long to be fed by something higher, something bigger than us, something that can make us happy. C.S. Lewis says that if I find in me a desire which nothing else in this world can satisfy, I know that I was made for something more. Blaise Pascal, the the French mathematician, said it like this. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. When we feel like something's missing, that we're not happy, we so often will look to fill it with things or a change of circumstances We'll even pray, which is not wrong. God, would you help me in this way? Would you fix this? Would you change this, O Lord? And friends, that's a a perfectly appropriate way to talk to your Heavenly Father. Pour out your whole heart to Him. But one of the first things that we should do if we are to be wise in how we respond to distressing situations is to remember the love of God for us as shown in Christ. That will satisfy the wandering heart, the hungry soul. Secondly, you see here that God redeems the captive. So we have the, the wanderers and now we have those who are captive or in prison. Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. 
in each of these four sections, you see the same pattern in how to respond to distressing situations. First, you see their distress, right? In this one, in verse 10, they sat in darkness. They're in prison in verse 11 because they have rebelled. So that's the distress. And then you see a desperate cry. And then you see an answer to that desperate cry. And then you see a praise. And then you see a reason for the praise. So distress, desperate cry, answer, praise, and then reason for the praise. So in this one, verse 10, some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. This is a universal condition of all mankind to be in darkness, to be under the shadow of death, imprisoned, yet wanting to escape. Being imprisoned here looks like a ghastly condition. But what's interesting, according to the text, is that man has chosen to be imprisoned. They've, they've rebelled, in a sense, to, they've rebelled, and the consequence is their imprisonment. In verse 11, they rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. God's people, Israel, were repeatedly given opportunities to trust God through his prophets. And more often than not, they spurned God's counsel by not listening to the prophets. And God's prophets also went to the nations. And then prophets were often spurned by the nations. Jeremiah was imprisoned. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Joseph was imprisoned. And Isaiah, church historians say, was sawn in half. The kings of Israel and the people of their kingdom and the people of the world spurn God's word. You see, we are all born into our sin, all prisoners of sin because of our rebellion. You might say, well, well, what if I don't choose to rebel against God? If that's you this morning, if you're saying, well, I don't call myself a, a rebellious person against God. Let me just encourage you. I'm going to challenge you real quick. Try not to rebel against God this week. Try not to sin. Just give it one week. Read his word and just start with the two simple commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? Anyone. Just see how that works out for you. The more you try that, the more you might see that you are rebellious against God and his ways. You will find yourself at your wit's end because as much As you try, you cannot love God and obey his commandments as he has said. You see, you are darkened in your understanding. Without Christ, we are totally, completely depraved, given given over to our own selfish desires. It's like we are in a jail cell with bars of iron and we cannot escape. As much as we want, we cannot get out. This is the result of sin. And then sin, as the text says, it leaves a a shadow of death over everything. Shadow of death over this world and also our own personal sin reveal that death is coming. It's anti-God. It's rebellion against God, who he is. And this is the curse given to mankind in Genesis 3. 
that death will come as a result of our rebellion. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Even the most kind people you've ever met in your life, they've sinned. And all fall short of this glory. And so this is what the psalmist is getting at. That they're in darkness. There's nothing that can be done. So what does God do in verse 12? He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. And they fell down with none to help. How many of us before coming to Christ felt like verse 12? We looked around and realized there's no one else to help. There's no one else to advocate for us between God. And we're distressed. But verse 13 says, this is what you do when you are distressed because of sin. When you feel like you're held captive by your sin. You cry out to Yahweh in your trouble and then he will deliver you from the distress. So, so is there a remedy for this problem? Absolutely. What do you must do? You must cry out and say, God, help me. That's all that God is requiring. You see that? Reminded of Luke 18. Go ahead and turn there to Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. Jesus is telling a parable to the crowds. And he particularly is telling the parable to those who trust in themselves. So if that is you this morning, I want you to especially listen up. Luke 18 verse 9 says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How does Jesus answer this man's desperate cry? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, it's a good thing for God to bring you low and for you to realize how much of a sinner you are. In those moments, God's mercy can be the sweetest. Take heed to verse 12. God is the one that is revealing your sin to you. That is his kindness and grace. Verse 12. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. Much like the Egyptians. Suffering and suffering and suffering. And in their suffering, that's when they're going to look to God's prophet Moses. And follow him in the exodus. and their deliverance. Verse 14, there he is, the reason for praise again. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of the bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. So we see the wanderer 
We see the captive and now we see the foolish. Look at this third section here in verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathe any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. They're distressed because they've become fools through their sinful ways. And because of their own iniquities, they've suffered affliction. Our own sin has consequences. Specifically here, we become foolish when we sin. It's an interesting way. I think when we think of sin, we probably mostly think of what? Evil first. Which is an appropriate feeling or thought, but also... Folly is often how the Bible talks about sin, especially in the poetic books. When we're of a right mind, that's when we're thinking rationally. We wouldn't choose to sin in our rational thinking, but sin makes our spiritual sensibility blunted. So that we're unable to perceive rightfully spiritual matters. So we walk towards the gates of death, even though the gates of death say, this is the place of death and dying and unhappiness of torments. And yet, in our sin, we become foolish and we keep walking. So just picture the signposts, like neon signs that say, this is the way of death. This is the, the gates to Hades. And so often we ignore Sin and death. And God says that's foolish. You see, when we hear of death, it should serve as a reminder of the penalty of sin. But also the need to be redeemed from that penalty and from death. Though sin is folly, it's very alluring, isn't it? Though you know it's not going to be good for you. Though you know clicking on that website will not help your marriage, will dishonor God. We're lured by it. It's tantalizing at times to gossip. It it feeds an unhealthy part of our soul. It's foolishness. We do the very thing that we don't want to do and the very thing that we hate. John Newton puts it like this, contemporary of William Cooper, one of his closest friends. He says this, in a word, there is so much darkness in my understanding, perverseness in my will, disorders in my affections, folly and madness in my imagination. Alas, when shall it be otherwise? I seem to have a desire of walking with God and rejoicing in him all the day long. Can you relate to that? I really want to just walk with God, to enjoy him, to not be even enticed by sin. And Newton says, but I cannot attain to that point. 
Surely it is far better to depart, to be with Jesus Christ, and to live here up to the ears in sin and temptation. And yet I seem very well contented with the possibility of continuing here a good while. In short, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistency. Can I get an amen if you're a heap of inconsistency? Jeez. It's so foolish, isn't it? Giving into sin. We know it's unhelpful to us, and yet we still give into it. Who can save us from such folly? What do we do? Friends, we cry out to God. Verse 19. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. How did he do it? He sent out his word, and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God sends out his powerful word to make us wise unto salvation so that we can look upon the things that the world says is folly like a crucified savior and we can say, no, that's wisdom. That will save me. Praise be to God. Praise be to Jesus Christ who endured the cross that we might behold the cross as wisdom. And not as folly. Drew, you're about to, Drew Rumsey, you're about to go off on Wednesday to join your peers in working amongst Muslim people. You will find time and time again that people you talk to will think that God dying on a cross is absolutely absurd. They will think that is folly, that God would never do that. And brother, your job is to give them the word, just as the psalmist says here, to send out the word, the life-saving message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus can heal them and cause them to no longer despise the cross, but to embrace the cross. The Lord can deliver them from destruction, just as he did you, brother. Go out with that message. We see here the response of praise, or we see the praise. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, verse 21, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Brothers and sisters, tell of the wondrous working love of God. Lastly, we see here in this section, God redeems the storm-tossed. 23, some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters, they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down the depths. They, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then, at their wits' end, then they cried to the Lord for their trouble in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. We see this storm. We don't know if the psalmist is talking about the prophet Jonah and his experience there. Certainly we can see Jesus in the boats with distressed Peter. Lord, what shall we do? 
Jesus as calm as ever, with his perfect plan in mind, showing his power and his love for his people, calming the storm. But here again, you see this pattern of when life comes at you and it feels like you're in the tempest, in this stormy trial, when it feels like all is about to give way, the response is to trust God for his loving kindness, to cry out to him. He's the one that can make the storm still and the waves of the sea were hushed. What's interesting about this, uh, this imagery here is that no sailor, no fisherman is going to see a huge brewing storm and say, all right, now's a good time to get in the boat and go find some fish. Now I want to enjoy a nice Sunday afternoon sailing trip. No, they, they wait for the, the storms to uh, subside. Uh, my daughters are doing rowing right now and so often they can't get in the, it's been so windy recently, they can't get in the water. That's wisdom. My goodness though, in life, we can't always project when there will be storms, can we? They seem from our perspective to sometimes just come out of nowhere. And when that happens, the response is the same as it is in the other three scenarios. To realize that God is using this to, in a sense, Make to, to reveal that we are sometimes like drunken men at our wit's end. And in that moment, to cry out to the Lord. In conclusion, look at the verses 33 to 43. We see God's wisdom in reversal. God's reversing all things to work for our good and his glory. Look at verse 33. He who turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend these things. Attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. God is using his wisdom. To show the folly of human wisdom. He's reversing all things for his own glory. And when we say that this is impossible without you, God, only you can do it. God gets the praise and the glory. So brothers and sisters, let me leave you with three points of application. Rather, three things to consider. Using words from verse 43. One, consider that God rides upon the storm. Consider that God rides upon the storm. In illness, if you're ill today, maybe you're not ill today, but you will be ill one day. None of us, until Christ comes back, can flee the shadow of death. In illness, in tragedy, in hardships, 
in desires yet not met. God rides upon the storm. Friends, look full in his wonderful face. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Learn in those moments to trust his love for you. And perhaps there's no better place in the Bible than to go but to Romans 8 in moments like that. So let me just read part of Romans 8. Romans 8, 31, or sorry, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is God doing when an unwanted storm comes upon your life, he's riding upon it. He's using it to conform you into the image of his son. That's exactly what he says here. And so can you rejoice when an unwanted trial comes your way? Absolutely, 100% yes. That is good. God wants you to do. Brother and sister, he wants to give you that confidence that his love is still fixed upon you. And when you doubt it, look to the cross. 31 of Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's a privilege to be a pastor and to or just be an involved church member and to sit with people like Dalton and, and Megan Box through, uh, you know, they delivered twin girls uh, a little over a month ago. Is that right, Megan? You know, what helped them remain steadfast through that time is they believed this. You know, sitting with Dalton, him very well knowing that in God's strange providence, that maybe his daughters wouldn't make it. To sit with a brother that believes this, so that, that does not mean that God does not love me. I know that God loves me because he's given his son for me. Friends, that's what the psalmist wants us to see, that God rides upon the storm he conform, by conforming us into the image of Christ. Secondly, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In these distressing situations, it looks really bad. We can't find a way out, but God says, I will provide a way and I will receive the glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are Seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As William Cooper said, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. If you ever eat something that's not ripe, it's bitter. But sweet will be the flower. Third consideration, brothers and sisters, say so. 
Let this be a church where we testify about the redeeming love of God in our lives, which is steadfast, immovable, and fixed. Before we take the Lord's Supper, let's spend a few moments in silence. Let me go ahead and invite the musicians to come up, and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we will always be discovering more and more about your love. Help us as a church to testify, especially in our moments of distress and uncertainty, about your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.